Welcome to the Just Pod, a podcast by the Criminal Justice Section of the ABA, the unified voice of criminal justice. Welcome to this episode of the Just Pod. Today we're in Nashville and meeting with our panel that just discussed mass incarceration and the First Step Act. And we have three distinguished panelists that were led by Honorable Tracy Todd. She was our moderator for this panel, and I'll let her introduce the topic for us today. Thank you, Emily. The topic today was mass incarceration related to the First Step Act. The First Step Act was a bipartisan reform effort by Congress to reduce the number of nonviolent prisoners that we have incarcerated in the federal system. And so today we had uh, Professor Hagan, Mr. Yarbrough, and Dean Barco to discuss their respective information as experts in their area. And so I will begin with Professor Hagan to talk about the consequences of mass incarceration on families very briefly. So thank you. I'm, I'm John Hagan and professor sociology and law at Northwestern University. My research has been focused on trying to understand what the impact of the very high levels of incarceration in the United States are on families and children. And I think uh, although there's increasing awareness, and especially with the recent uh, legislative changes, that our incarceration levels are very high, we often don't think about the fact of the impact on the other family members who are involved when someone goes to prison, a mother or a father. Something like half of all of the people in prison in the United States today are parents. And what we've been trying to do in our research is to take a look over the long term to try and see what the impact on these young people might be. And uh, involved in some longitudinal research with the National Longitudinal Study of Adolescents and Adults uh, in the United States, about 10,000 youth were now at a point where they were first contacted in the late 1990s. Now, 20 years later, we can look at their educational outcomes. And what we're seeing is tremendous variations across the United States and at the state level. And this, of course, is a result of the fact that uh, criminal justice is very much a state matter as well as a federal matter in the United States, and even more predominantly a state matter. And so states that are more supportive of these young people, that is the children of incarcerated parents, do a lot of, lot better in terms of their educational outcomes. And what we're seeing is in the states that do the very best job in terms of supporting families and children and with some of the problems that are unique to the children of incarcerated parents, getting really good results. And so we're trying to emphasize that long view and an understanding that uh, imprisonment isn't just something that happens to the person who goes to prison, but also to the other members of their family. Thank you. I think actually next I'd like to ask Mr. Yarbrough about your experience in working with Centoya Brown's case as the professor was just speaking to the effect that incarceration has on families and just also speaking to the issues with youth. I think that uh, kind of leads us naturally to Centoya's experience and, and the path to clemency. Would you tell us about what made her case stand out and how you were successful in getting her clemency granted? 
By way of introduction, I'm a lawyer here in Nashville with the firm of Bone McAllister Norton, and I'm also a former state and federal prosecutor, so I've seen this from both sides. But the case of Centoria Brown sort of caught the imagination of people in America, it seems, and, and also some celebrities, which I have a, a feeling might have both uh, given and taken away at different times in, in different ways. But ultimately, I think the fact that the case was so widely known helped us because it meant that Governor Governor Haslam, the governor of Tennessee, who recently went out of office this in January of this year, pretty much had to address this. And I don't I'm not saying he would have ever ignored it. But in the in the past, we know that some of these applications don't get a lot of attention from the executives. And I think he gave it very careful attention and made a great decision. The story of Centoya in a capsule is that she was a teenage prostitute on the streets of Nashville. She ended up shooting and killing one of her customers. She stole property from his home, took his car was arrested fairly quickly and and, uh, incarcerated, never made bond, and went to trial and was convicted of first-degree murder. In Tennessee, first-degree murder carries a mandatory sentence of 60 years before parole eligibility, and with full credit, that meant 51 years, and that would have meant that she would get out at age 67 if she served the full term and got parole immediately. We think, by the way, that that's a problem that that juveniles should not be subject to that adult law in Tennessee, and we're hoping the legislature will change that fairly soon. There's a lot of pressure being brought to bear, but we have a pretty conservative legislature in Tennessee, so it's going to be a hard road probably. But in her case, the real centerpiece of her whole case is the fact that she is just a model of rehabilitation. Once she had been in the penitentiary for a few years, she began to realize that her life was a dead end and that the only hope that she would ever have to be released would be through the rehabilitation programs, not only the penitentiary, but the ones offered by a local university. Lipscomb University had education programs at the prison. She took full advantage of that, is about to get a a bachelor's degree, and has become a mentor and tutor to many of the women at the prison and will hopefully be released in August of this year. And I I think she serves as a model, perhaps, of what other prisoners similarly situated can do. And our hope is that uh, some of the women out there will do that. But frankly, until the law changes, we don't think there'll be uh, a real remedy here. So we hope the law will change in the near future. So as a follow-up to your experience in working on Centoya Brown's case, what are your thoughts on the First Step Act and the potential for others to be able to have early release? Not that it's the same no. as what Centoya Brown's circumstances were, but... Well, I think I think someone commented on earlier in the panel. You know, we 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 need to go back to the idea of rehabilitation. We got away from that because I think the federal system was frustrated with some of the results they were having. Probably, frankly, with poor administration of the idea. But but whatever the reason, the notion that people who are convicted of serious crimes cannot be rehabilitated is ridiculous. In this state. For example, it used to be common that the governor out at the governor's mansion would have servants in the kitchen and on the grounds by people from the prison system, and typically it was armed robbery and murder. 
the convictions that they had. And the, the reason they did that was that they found that many of these types of people had committed that, that awful crime, but after a few years at the penitentiary had, had somehow or another gotten past all of that and were on the road to rehabilitation and became uh, good uh, helpers at, at the governor's mansion, knowing that back then at least, not anymore, but back then it was a chance that the governor would uh, smile on them and, and shorten their sentence before he left office. And you might say, well, that's not a real very impressive program. But what it tells me is that anything is possible if people are committed to a sane, rational, and perhaps a system with a little bit of grace in it. So I think we need to take another look at that, both the federal level and the state level. And uh, the first step is obviously not perfect, but it's just what it says. It's the first step. Thank you for that. And Dean, you were speaking to what the First Step Act has accomplished and what it doesn't accomplish. So uh, why don't you take some time to lay that out for us and and what you think the wins are and, and where there's still room. Sure. So I would emphasize the positive first on the First Step Act. Uh, So a couple things it does that I think are helpful is it makes the changes to the crack sentencing laws that were passed in 2010 that tried to alleviate the big disparity between how crack and powder cocaine had been treated for sentencing purposes. It made those changes retroactive. And that will benefit about 3,000 people who are currently in federal prison. And, and that's a big deal. You know, it'll be a big sentencing reduction for them. And we're already seeing people going home. And the stories are very moving. And we know from data that the Sentencing Commission has assembled on another group of people who got sentencing reductions through sentencing guideline changes for crack sentences, that you can do that and it won't lead to an increase in recidivism rates. So, you know, I think this is something that can be done as a matter of public safety because we already have evidence from the Sentencing Commission from another group of people who got reductions that it didn't lead to increased recidivism. So that's one aspect of the First Step Act that I applaud. It's also great that the First Step Act will allow people now to apply directly to a judge to get compassionate release, whereas previously they had to go through the Bureau of Prisons. And the Bureau of Prisons has a terrible track record in terms of processing those requests. So there are two inspector general reports and also a sentencing commission evaluation of the way the Bureau of Prisons was processing compassionate release that shows that, frankly, deserving candidates were getting denied. And oftentimes they were dying while they waited for their application to get processed. So this provision in the First Step Act will allow people to go directly to a judge once they have tried to get an answer first from BOP. And after a certain amount of time, they can go to a judge and get released directly. I think that is a great development. There'll be earned time credits now in the federal system will go from 47 days per year. Good time credits, excuse me, will go from 47 days to 54 days. There's also changes to sentencing provisions in the First Step Act. So you're not going to be able um, anymore. Federal prosecutors will not be able to what's called stack 924C convictions. So those are charges that are imposed on people if they used a firearm during or in relation to a drug trafficking offense or a crime of violence. And previously, prosecutors could, for example, arrange a couple buy and busts with somebody. And if that person had a firearm while they were selling their drugs, they could do three of those without ever having arrested the person and charge them. The, you know, the first buy would yield a five-year mandatory minimum. The second buy would be 25 years 
another 25 for the third. So you could have a first-time offender getting a 55-year mandatory minimum sentence. The First Step Act fixes that, but it only fixes it going forward. So the people who are currently incarcerated having been charged that way where, you know, they stacked those 924C charges, they don't have any relief in the uh, First Step Act. Similarly, the act changes the mandatory minimum for someone, basically the three strikes federal law for drug trafficking. Previously, you'd get a life sentence for that, mandatory, uh, and now it's 25 years. Again, that's not retroactive. Um, If it's your second offense, they change the mandatory from 20 years to 15 years again, not retroactive. And I think my biggest critique of the law is that failure to recognize that you should have retroactive opportunities for adjustments where someone could go before a judge and the judge could look at what their original crime was, could look at their record while they were incarcerated. And if the judge finds that it wouldn't be a risk to public safety, go ahead and give them the benefit of the sentence that they'd receive today because Congress has just made a decision that that's the right sentence for somebody. So why let people languish in prison under that old sentencing regime. And then the other aspect of the First Step Act that I just want to flag is there's a part of the act that requires the Bureau of Prisons to create risk needs assessments for people currently incarcerated, figure out who, what their risk levels are, and then design programming for those folks. And if people participate in the programming that BOP creates, they'll be able to earn time off their sentence. So it's something like... um, For every 30 days of programming, they can earn 10 days off their sentence. And for another group, it's for every 30 days, 15 days. So it's quite a lot of earn time credit available, uh, which, again, I think is a is progress. It's a, it goes to that idea that we could be rehabilitating people. We could be creating good programming. Here, the flaw with the act is the population that needs that the most and where we get the biggest bang for our buck is with high-risk populations. Um, we don't need that kind of programming for the lower-risk population. They are already low-risk. Uh, but politically, Congress made the decision that they only wanted to make that available to the, the low-risk group. Um, and I think that's unfortunate because we'd get better safety outcomes if we made that kind of programming available to the groups that need it the most. And, and I do think it goes to this idea that there's a political calculus about what we should be doing about crime, but then there's what we know from evidence and data, and all too often they're not the same thing. And it would be far better had the First Step Act reflected some of that knowledge that we've amassed. Mm-hmm. So... Mr. Yarbrough, you said this too. It it does say the First Step Act. Some of these other steps that need to be taken, do you feel like there's momentum headed in that direction that we'll likely see more? Oh, I hate to be a downer, uh, uh, but I will say that it was really like pulling teeth to get this. And it wasn't as if these were ideas that were lost on the members of Congress. These kinds of arguments were presented to them and they rejected them. And, And I think one thing that people forget is when we say, oh, this was a bipartisan piece of legislation, there was bipartisan opposition to it as well. So it's not as if there's some question here of, well, one party totally gets this and we're just waiting for enough members of the other party to get it. That's not true. Um, You see people on both sides of the aisle just going with the same political playbook they've had. And what 
would be required for significant next steps would be dealing with far more politically risky kinds of populations. So you'd have to allow for retroactive sentencing changes, even for people who have committed serious crimes. And you would have to allow there to be programming for people who are in for more serious crimes. And once you start getting to populations that have violence in their offense, it becomes dicier to do that. But that's precisely the group that we benefit the most from helping, and we get better public safety outcomes if we did. And, you know, to go back to what Mr. Yarbrough was saying, people do change with with interventions, and we could do a lot to speed that up and help that along. It's just politically, it's hard to do. So I will say I'm not super optimistic we'll see it with any kind of haste, but I think we might see funding for what they've already done. That is a possibility. They didn't really fund a lot of this. So I would say the next step might be to actually support financially what they wanted to see implemented. And then the other big question mark would be, even if Congress doesn't make some of this retroactive, there is an opportunity for the president to do so through his clemency powers. So just like the governor took a second look at Centoya Brown's case and really looked at what she had done from the time of her offense until today, the president of the United States is charged with doing that for all the people who are in federal facilities. And I think if the president did that, he would find many, many, many deserving people who should be given clemency grants. So my hope is we might see some changes with that process. Judge Todd, did you have something to add to that? I did want to add that I am encouraged by the First Step Act as a state court judge in a state that is one of the highest incarcerators in the world, uh, where it is more politically dangerous to do these sorts of things such that the legislators in our state or states like ours will have a pathway towards making more reforms at the state level that are palatable for people who are afraid to step out there politically. And so I think by having at least some bipartisan agreement at the federal level, Perhaps states like Alabama, Mississippi, Oklahoma can come on board Louisiana and maybe make some reform efforts that are small steps, but steps nonetheless, wherein we really need to get these numbers down, especially in those states that are usually not able to support their prison populations because they are not as wealthy as other states. And so I'm encouraged as a state court judge in the criminal division that it could be a path for states uh, like mine to move forward uh, in terms of getting our rates down. Well, let's hope that ends up being the case. I would like to thank all of you for joining us on the Just Pod today. Thank you. I, I'm sure there's much more we could discuss, uh, but we appreciate your time that you gave us. And thank you to our listeners for joining us on this episode of the Just Pod.